Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we are talking the energetic problems with decarbonisation, specifically the energetic return on investment and how that looks between existing hydrocarbon energy production and the new suite of decarbonizing renewables available to us. As we'll hear, the history of humanity has been one of very low eroi until the Industrial Revolution. The challenge lies in the suite of tools available for decarbonization don't match up to what we currently have. And what does that mean for society? What does that mean for standards of living? And what does that mean for energy transition? Our guest is Adam Rosenzweig, who's managing partner at Goering at Rosenzweig, an investment fund focused on energy and natural resources. What follows is a fascinating and challenging discussion about energy transition and the tools that we have available. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have this discussion. We're, we're talking essentially about kind of the, the energetic problem of decarbonization. Let's start, I guess, with just a, a little bit about you and, and, and where you're coming from to have this discussion. Yeah, sure thing. So our firm, Gehring and Rosenzweig, we are dedicated natural resource investors. We've been doing this. My partner, Lee, has been doing this for over 30 years, and I've been working in the space for over 15. And one of the key parts to our investment process uh, is our research. And, and I know a lot of people like to say that they have really original research, and a lot do. Uh, but but I think we really take a huge amount of pride in ours. And I think some of the conclusions that we come to are completely different from the consensus. And I think this is be a perfect discussion today of exactly one of those. You know, going back, I would say five or six years ago, maybe even longer now, it became clear uh, that renewables were sort of moving from the fringes out into, uh, you know, a key part of people's energy strategies going forward. And we had a big decision to make. We had to decide whether or not uh, we would move in the direction of renewables as well, or whether we would continue to sort of gravitate towards more traditional energies. Because remember, we are a diversified resources firm, so we can completely get rid of oil and gas and coal and move into either battery metals and materials, or we could even go right into the renewable power providers themselves. So we have quite a bit of latitude. So we needed to figure out whether or not they made any sense. And a lot of people were talking in terms of costs and it's always difficult in the renewable space and in the energy transition because there's so many subsidies and there's so many projections and the idea of scaling up and driving costs down. So we tried to look at it a different way. And we tried to look at it from the perspective of energy return on energy investment or the underlying energy economics. Um, and it's something that other people had looked at in the past. Charles Hall, you know, back all the way back in the 70s and 80s, wrote quite a bit in the academic press on the subject. He coined the term energy return on investment, or EROI. And then more popularly, Vaclav Smil, who was a professor at the University of Manitoba and was made famous because Bill Gates talks about him all the time, has written several really fascinating books on the history of energy. And basically, you know, what Smil says is that for a new energy technology to really take hold, 
it has to be more efficient than what it's replacing. We've never really had an instance of a prime mover or an energy source come and take over if its energy return on energy investment is substantially or, or even a little bit worse, or in fact, even not much better. Uh, you know, It has to be much better for it to really displace the incumbent technology. And we said, wow, that's really interesting. You can go back two, three, 4,000 years and see example after example. And now let's beg the question, well, what is renewable? What do renewables look like under that framework? And so we de dedicated a lot of time to try to answering that question. So, okay, so so I want to dig into EROI, E-R-O-I, e and, and how you went about answering that. But I just want to pause a moment and just talk a little bit about sort of the, the history behind, you know, not just the history of sort of the academic thinking on this, but the reality of human existence has ultimately been tied to one of increasing energy consumption. Can you just set that up for us as well? Because I think that provides a really important backdrop to the discussion we're about to have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the history of energy is not something that I ever expected to find to be a really fascinating topic, but it is. And, you know, we have sort of a, a section of my home library is dedicated to the history of energy. And there's all sorts of writers, um, some of whom I mentioned, some of whom I have not, uh, that have written really interesting stories. But What's particularly poignant, I think, about the history of energy is that for most of human existence, it was completely static. It was really unchanged. We generated our energy by uh, effectively eating crops, whether it's for ourselves or for the animals that we used, either feed or, or fodder, and then using muscle power to move simple machines. Um, and we use that in order to help plow our fields. We use that in order to help saw down wood uh, and and transform it into building materials and and really if you look we have pretty good data actually going all the way back to about 1 AD or you know or, or about 2000 years and if you look over those 2000 years the consumption the human consumption of energy first of all the distribution what we consumed in what form that took place and the quantum of energy was almost unchanged. It was basically completely static for the first 16 centuries. In fact, if you look at energy growth per capita, I think it grew something like 0.02% per year. It doubled uh, in 16 centuries. I mean, that's effectively zero any way you cut it. And similarly, total GDP didn't grow by all that much. Life expectancy was low uh, and remained that way. And if you look sort of around the world, the most you could support at any given time was a city of about a million people. And why was that? Well, because if you got much above a million people, the amount of energy required to bring your food and wood in from the hinterlands consumed all of the contained energy in those fuel sources. And you actually ended up with sort of this net negative energy suck. And that's where your city maxed out. So the first 1600 years were completely, completely static, incremental improvements here and there, you know, changes in animal harnesses and things like that, uh, but basically unchanged. And then, and then in the 16th and the 17th century, almost overnight, we brought in the beginnings of the modern world that we have today. And it's a truly fascinating change. 
Yeah. Um, and those societies at the million person level, those cities, we did an episode, a Christmas special on Rome. And, you know, there are similar examples in mind civilization, etc. lived at the very edge of what was tolerable from an environmental standpoint. And any shifts or changes there had dramatic consequences. So, so OK, so that's fantastic. Before we embark on this conversation as well. There's almost, uh, my sense is from our previous conversations, you know, this isn't necessarily, a, well, this isn't about the morality, etc., of of energy transition decarbonisation. This is purely looking at it from the fundamentals and from the facts. Can you just, I guess, un- help us understand, when it comes to the need to decarbonise, when it comes to climate change, where 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 is the your your thinking on that? Well, my, my thinking is, is is quite clear. You know, I think that we do need to decarbonize. Uh, however, I don't think that we can do it in a framework that's independent from efficiency or independent from, in this case, EROI. And the reason for that is that we've tried it now for 10 years, and we've tried it during a period of relative energy abundance. And so the same as, you know, capital abundance, if you have lots of money, either because you're printing money or or, or personally in your bank account, you can make some foolish investment decisions and they don't necessarily come home to roost right away. And that's sort of where we've been in our energy economy for the last 10 years. We brought on the shales a decade ago. We have a huge amount of abundant energy. Price of all energy forms fell basically 90% in the 2010s. And we went out and embarked on a major building boom for things that that have very poor energy economics and it hasn't really mattered but now it does and so now you know we, we've worked through uh that massive shale resource uh we're in a tighter energy market and so now all of a sudden we have conflicting goals we have two things that we have to deal with and and we didn't have that thus far so the way i think about it um i think that we're putting too much carbon into the atmosphere i think that everybody could probably do well from a major dose of humility in trying to understand some of these cycles. You know, the climate is an incredibly complicated uh, system. I personally think that that CO2 is contributing to climate change. I don't think it's the only thing that's contributing to climate change. I think in particular, sunspot cycles are uh, of extreme interest and have in one a now. major, major impact. Yeah, that exactly. We're, we're, we're coming to a shift now where we're going into a period of low sunspot activity, but we've been in a period of high sunspot activity, which historically is always correlated to a warming trend. Now we could be entering a cooling trend against a larger CO2 man-made warming trend and really sort of begin to complicate things. My, my only point is that I think that people on both sides of the debate would probably do well by, by taking a step back and, and admitting that these are complex problems. But I think we were putting too much CO2 in the atmosphere. I think it's leading to global warming. And so I think we need to find a solution to our energy needs that has both high EROI and low CO2. And I think that that should be everyone's focus. And luckily, nuclear power fits that bill quite nicely. Right. And we're going we're to come on to some solutions here. But it is fascinating what you say there, because there are these enormous analogies with essentially the post-financial crisis and the the printing of money and the artificially low exchange rates that we discussed with Edward Chancellor and you and I talked over as well and the energy world because that shale revolution was extraordinary can you just give us some sense of scale that what that allowed what that opened up because um, I know you've done work on that and then effectively what did allow all these energy companies to then go into looking at other sources of energy before we talk mechanics of eroy 
Sure. No, I think I think you know it, it's a wonderful point, and I think that the impact of the shales in the 2010s, um, you know, this will be one of those things where the history books are not yet written. I think if you ask most lay people or most you know consensus investors, and you say, "What do you think about shale in the past decade?" They say, "Oh, massive value destroyers." But really, what what the shales did in the last 10 years uh, was they brought on a source of conventional energy, oil and natural gas, that really rivals the finding and the development of the super major oil fields uh, in the middle part of the 20th century in, in Saudi Arabia and places in the Middle East. You know, if you look at what the shale, just straight oil, went from zero to over 10 million barrels a day, you had another 4 million barrels a day of NGL production coming from the shales or natural gas liquids. So that in and of itself is in excess of what Saudi Arabia produces today. And today, Saudi Arabia produces at its maximum. So, you know, the impacts are enormous. And on the gas side, we brought on, you know, 90 Bs, which you tend to divide it by six to one in order to get an oil barrel equivalent. Uh, that's, that's larger than Saudi Arabia. So it's like we brought on two Saudi Arabias in the US in the same decade. And I joked with somebody that, you know, when you look in the history books, for the Saudi Arabian history in the middle part of the 20th century, I guarantee you quite a bit of ink is spilled talking about the oil industry. But if you talk about the 2010s in the United States, you know, you probably will only read, well, the shale industry was this crazy group of cowboys that destroyed capital. I mean, their impact is enormous. It drove the price of energy on a global basis, whether you look at oil, gas, by extension, coal, which was you know being priced off of gas, uh, uranium, what have you, fell 90% peak to trough. And so the two things I think that will go down in history in the 2010s uh, will have been, it was the decade of the lowest cost of capital in human history and the biggest peak to trough decline in real energy terms ever. Uh, and what did we get? We got these massive projects that require lots of energy and lots of capital. And I think there's no surprise if you really think rationally about it. Mm. And and just on that, is that shale story, because the last three, four years has been essentially large oil majors, Conoco, etc., Chevron, coming in, applying capital discipline and the operational rigor to make those fields more <laughs> viable for investors, not just the, the people who own the land. Is that a story that you think is is just getting going or have we sort of run, is run its course already and, and those fields are all sort of getting depleted? Well, I think the biggest issue regarding those fields is the depletion problem that they now face. And, you know, shales are so big. You know, we have some interesting charts. I, I'm not sure if you have a link on your podcast, but if not, people can go and visit our websites and we have them on there. I'll put a link in. When you start to look at the impacts of con what we call conventional oil, so non-shale oil in the U.S., and you strip out the shales, it's a tale of two oil sources, right? Conventional production has been declining and the shales have just surged. And the surge has been so big and so dramatic that I would forgive any analyst or investor for thinking that they're basically infinite because it seemed that way uh, over the last several years where you could grow them a million, a million and a half barrels per day per year. And, and in some cases, it seemed almost miraculous where we started reducing the rig counts and production grew more and more and more because the productivity of each well was going up and up and up. 
But really big is not the same as infinite. And we have come to the end, I think, of the major shale basins in the United States. Uh, and we can talk about international shale because that's important as well. But we have an example. We have two examples on the gas side of what depleted shale basins look like. The Barnett and the Fayetteville, two of the earliest shales, they've run their course and they're off 60 70% from their peak. So we know that even though they're big and different, uh, they ultimately conform to the same rules of geology as a conventional basin does. They ultimately plateau and roll over. Uh, and we feel that the same is now happening in the oil shales. And indeed, in the oil shales, we have three major basins. We have the Bakken up in North Dakota, the Eagleford in East Texas, and the Permian, which is the biggest and most recently developed of all three. And of that, two of them have clearly peaked and, and rolled over. You know, two of them have stopped growing. The Bakken and the Eagleford haven't grown now for three or four years, uh, and they'll they'll never be able to achieve new highs. Maybe they can do it by by a tiny bit, but uh, their growth is, for all intents and purposes, behind us. And the Permian is the big question. And and we've tried to calibrate where the Eagleford and the Bakken peaked and rolled over versus where the Permian is today. And we came to the conclusion that we felt in 2024 that would probably be the end of the Permian. It now seems as though it might be even earlier than that. We're seeing more and more companies reporting poor and poor well productivity. We've seen just this week alone two headlines in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg talking about depletion in the shales. So I think what people have to remember is that big is not the same as infinite. And mm. you know what they've done is incredible, but we're now running our course with them. Which is kind of uh, you know slightly terrifying in that the backdrop to shale has been less and less investment, almost none in the capability for offshore. And you can only look at offshore rig rates today to, to see that starting to play out. But also, as, as you mentioned, the, the, the confluence of low interest rates meant these huge facilities have been built along the Gulf Coast to capture that cheap energy for the chemical sector, for example. And you see, you know, various announcements out of Europe about moving, which, you know, has, um, I guess, challenges there and investment implications as well, which probably isn't part of this story, but worth noting nonetheless. Okay, so let's talk energetic return on investment. What exactly is it? And can you start working us through sort of how the various toolkits we have available at the moment to produce energy um, compare? Yeah, absolutely. So look, you know, I think that uh, investors are, are taught to think in terms of, you know, returns. Profits don't matter. It needs to be what what's the return on assets, right? You need to know how much capital was employed to generate that profit. And I think there's a very clear analogy. You know, when, when in the financial business, you use capital to create dollar profits. And so you have dollar capital and dollar profits. And the ability to recycle that and the ability to generate a, a return in a percent basis is, is, is critically important to the functioning of a financial system. And the same is really true in an energetic system. You're producing energy. And so it obviously uh, stands to reason that how much energy is consumed in that process in order to generate the energy uh, becomes really important. So whether you're talking about generating, growing crops for your human consumption or for animal consumption or what have you, whether you're talking about tapping into a coal seam or drilling an oil well or building a windmill or a solar panel, I think the key focus really has to be on the amount of energy that that energy source will produce relative to the amount of energy that is required to build it in the first place. And that in its broadest sense is EROI or EROI, the energy return on investment. So instead of the dollar return on investment, it's the energy return on investment. And it becomes a really key metric. You know, I think a couple of things become 
really important. First is what I mentioned before, that idea that over history uh, and, and over centuries or even thousands of years, the story of human history has really been one of moving from lower EROI to higher EROI. Uh, we estimate and, 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 you know, there's obviously a lot of nuance that goes, it's a simple concept, but a lot of nuance. And one of the major pieces of nuance here is the idea of what's known as the energy boundary. So, which is to say, fine, you know, if, if you need a steel pipe to drill an oil well, that has a certain amount of energy embedded in it, but you have a rig also, do you, do you how much energy is in that? We have to divide that by how many wells it'll ultimately drill in its lifetime. Well, then it needs three or four rig operators. They consume energy as well. Do you want to include their pro rata share of energy? And they require a truck to get them to the work site. Do you want to try to require that pro rata amount? And so where you draw the boundary becomes really important. But but it's not important, I don't think, to get lost in the details. I think the principle is fascinating. And what you see over time is, like I said, you move from a EROI of about five to one higher and higher and higher. So what was five to one? Five to one was basically in an agrarian lifestyle, like I said, where we were growing crops for ourselves and our animals. We were using wood for both a heat source for a very small amount of metal forging and metallurgical work. And then most importantly, to build our houses. The total amount of energy, if you put one unit of energy into an economy like that, you were generating five units of usable energy out the other side. And what did that energy go to? Well, like I said, some of it went to creating the energy itself. Some of it went to our subsistence needs, so to feed ourselves and those in our family. And then some went in order to make our housing and things of that nature. And what you had left was your surplus energy. And that could be used just like surplus capital. That could be used to invest in the economy, to grow. And the amount of surplus energy available in an EROI society with a five to one ratio was basically zero. And so I would argue if you look back over the first 1600 years, you know, from AD one to eight to 1600, that's why we had such anemic growth. We had basically no energy left over. Once you consumed the energy needed to make your energy, once you consumed the energy needed to feed yourself and your loved ones and house them, you almost had nothing left over. Now you might say, well, what about these huge pockets of wealth? You know, if you look back in history, these wealthy people and built these massive palaces and estates and things like that, that was all really done at the expense of others. Mm, you know, that was really right? the only way that you could complete inequality. You know, you had in a feudal state, you had the lords and the vassals. And, and if you spread that tiny excess surplus over thousands of people, you could probably lead quite a nice life, but it was really a zero sum game. And I'll get back to that in a second because I think there's some really interesting historical ramifications as well. Then what happened in uh, around 1650, and it happened you know, very abruptly. People today, when they talk about energy transitions, they always seem to talk about how long it has to take. But if you look actually historically, this all happens very, very quickly. In London, basically, you chop down your last trees. And so, like I said before, you, know, you had to go further and further into the hinterlands and whatever energy was contained in those croplands and trees was consumed, bringing it into the city centers. And that's what happened in, in England. And the, the English had to move into a sort of alternative uh, fuel source. And they had noticed that this outcropping of black rock over there burned quite nicely. And perhaps that could be used in place of wood 
uh, as, as a fuel source. And of course, that was the advent of coal. Hmm. And almost overnight, things began to change because we estimate that a coal-based economy would enjoy an EROI, early coal would, joy, would enjoy an EROI of 10 to 1 instead of 5 to 1. So now the amount of energy needed to make your energy dropped by half and that additional liberated energy could be used as surplus and that could be used as investment that could be used to grow and almost overnight things began to change and i think it's canals really fascinating. railways you oh. know you know and it's it's fascinating isn't it because it's it sounds like it's you know you're sort of thinking that well that's five extra units of energy but that's an incredible amount of energy that can go into raising all incomes but actually leaves you an incredible overhang to then invest in. I mean, you just got to look at 17th, 18th century England to look at the astonishing rate of development uh, that went on there and the network of canals that were built and then subsequently railways, you know, shipping the coal down from Newcastle to London and all the ports that were built. I mean, just to give you some sense of scale, and that's just talking about 10 to 1. No, that that's exactly right. And, you know, I think, again, what's, what's really wild to me is if you look, you know, call it 1500 versus 500, you know, AD, and you look at the changes, let's say across England, across Europe, or really anywhere, but if you want to kind of focus in somewhere and you want to focus in on, on, on England, you know, look at, look at England in 500 versus 1500 versus in 1500 to 1700. It, it's night and day. It's absolutely night and day. And the difference was liberating those five units of energy that allowed surplus capital. And the idea of surplus is so important because it's the same as with money and with capital. If you're running everything kind of at net break even and you're unable to invest, you can't have that compounding effect. And that's exactly what we saw begin to happen uh, beginning in England in the 16th century. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focus solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Move us on to when we get to utilising oil a couple hundred years later on from from sort of the advent of coal as the major source of fuel. Yeah, absolutely. So first, as I said, you know, we, we moved into coal uh, beginning around 1650, let's say, um, and then it really started to take hold you know, pretty quickly thereafter. I think it's also just worth, worth pointing out, and, and this is something that I'm sure the historians and academics amongst your listeners will push back on me vehemently, but, you know, a lot of philosophy began to emerge then as well that that I would argue probably had a lot to do with this idea of surplus. First and foremost, the idea of uh, enlightened property rights and things of that nature. You know, if you have no surplus, if, if all you're talking about is, is your shelter uh, and, and what food you have to subsist on, you know, I'm sure people sat around the campfire at that point talking about strong property laws and, and you know, say, well, it's really interesting stuff, but we don't really have much property. Uh, and so I don't really need much, much property law to go along with it. And then all of a sudden, once you started developing surplus, you had to develop new frameworks in order to help protect that. Uh, similarly, you know, the idea of division of labor and all the really fascinating 
Scottish uh, economic philosophy, including Adam Smith and others that came around around that time as well. You know, if you don't have surplus, you can't allocate surplus efficiently. There is no wealth of nations in quite the same way. And in fact, you know, Charles Hall in his book, it's called Energy and the Wealth of Nations. And I don't think that that's a, um, I don't think that's a coincidence. So, you know, all of a sudden growth started to take place. If you look at GDP growth before and after that time, it grew by a factor of about tenfold compared to what it did before. You went from about, you know, uh, 0.2%. I think you ended up at kind of two or three or 0.02% to about 40 basis points, 50 basis points. And then, you know, the next major leap forward, if you will, occurred uh, at the end of the 19th century. Oil was discovered basically uh, at the same time in two places, one in Azerbaijan and one in Oil City, Pennsylvania in the United States. And now all of a sudden you lifted the EROI from about 10 to 1 to, to what we know today, which is, you know, oil and gas at about 30 to one. So again, you just had this massive liberation of excess energy, no longer required to make the energy now could be used uh, for other purposes. Again, you sort of had this fixed cost, right, of what it takes to feed yourself, what it takes to provide basic maintenance shelter. That didn't really change in energy terms over the years. Maybe it got a little bit lower if we, you know, develop better building techniques and stuff. But basically that was largely unchanged and it all just keeps dropping to the bottom line in the term of surplus, in the term of a investable energy that we can use to grow and to get better and to refine our engines and to refine our factories uh, and just to move into more and more and more efficient harnessing of energy. And that's the modern world we know today. You know, a, a million person city is now quaint. You know, the biggest cities in the world, of course, are 25 million plus. We have several hundred cities greater than a million. You know, for, for almost 2000 years, the world economy could only seem to support one at a time. Now, why that would be the case, I have absolutely no idea, you know, considering the wood used as an energy source in Rome has nothing to do with the wood used as an energy source in London. However, you know, history does show we had one major city in the world at a time. Now, uh, like I said, you live in the country if you live in a city of less than a million people, basically. The amount of energy that we consume, the amount of metals that we consume, it's risen 50-fold. And if you look in the developed world, because we still have this massive energy consumption and an installed base dislocation between the rich and the poor, uh, if you look in the OECD in the developed world, you're talking about consuming 200 to 300 times as much energy as we did 150 years ago. It is, it is a different, different world. Uh, the amount of metals that we consume today is you know staggering. Back for most of human history, metals uh, were considered to be, you know, the most cherished, rare things. Why? Because it took so much energy to make them, and energy was such a dear and scarce resource. And for the last hundred years, energy's basically been free for all intents and purposes. And you know, all you have to do. People talk about a service economy being very low energy now. I mean, I don't know about you, but a Goldman Sachs investment banker, the pinnacle of the service economy, he consumes more energy than anybody I've ever met. He goes, you know, he's on a plane every week going somewhere. Well, Zoom calls, right? I mean, the, the, the energy infrastructure, and this is something that's forgotten, and we've got Mark Mills coming on in the future talking about this. The And we had Guillaume Petron talking about L'Enfer Numérique. And we also, there's a lot of 
hidden energy consumption, right? It's, it's very tactile putting gasoline in your car, but I think it's largely forgotten that having a Zoom call, all of the cloud infrastructure, all of the computing, all of the immediate energetics of your laptop being on and charged has an incredible consumption as well attached to it, not, not least with ski trips and all the rest of it and flights around the world added on. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one thing, and and maybe I'll be the first to say it here, because this is something I've been thinking about for the last couple of months now, and I have not seen it written anywhere else. But, you know, the everyone talks about how chat GPT is really going to change so many things. And one of the things that is in the crosshairs immediately is the idea that Google is going to be completely irrelevant now because chat GPT will understand your query and will provide you a much better answer much more quickly. However, what people don't talk about is that a chat GPT query is an order of magnitude, if not more energy consumptive than a Google search. Um, so would it really kill you to look three links down on Google to be able to save 90% of the energy? Uh, and, and it'll only take you a fraction of a second. You know, we're much better much more energy efficient uh, in terms of our cognitive processing than something like chat GPT will be. So people are talking about how unbelievable this new technology is. And, and uh, we've done a lot of work on AI um, and we use AI actually for our, a lot of our analysis of oil fields and things like that. Uh, and so we're, we're very, very aware of, of its huge ability, but talk about an energy hog. It's incredible. Uh, and so I think as we go forward, chat GPT, this is a completely aside the point, but chat GPT Achilles' heel will be its energy consumption. Well, it's it's not aside the point in in channeling Mark Mills here. Um, you know his book Cloud Revolutions. Like the amount of energy we're likely to be using in ten years is orders of magnitude more than today, precisely because AI and the things that are in cloud computing are so energetically expensive. So that's the the backdrop about you know we, we can't also think about the world in a static. You know this is peak energy. You know we're far far from it. I'm in danger of burying the lead here again, though. But so we're okay. So that's oil, and that's a picture of how much energy we are using today, and how much we're going to be using in the future, and actually how it has had a profound impact on lowering inequality uh, and raising the, you know a global population out of out of uh, extreme energy poverty. Where does that stack up against the toolkit that we have today for energy for decarbonization, wind, solar, possibly hydrogen, etc. And and that's the real key, isn't it? You know, and very few people have talked about that. And why have they not talked about it? Well, I think it's because we've had such a period of abundant energy. It really hasn't mattered. But the truth is that wind and solar and hydrogen, for that matter, we can talk about hydrogen in a second, have terrible energy return uh, on investments. They have terrible EROIs compared to oil and compared to natural gas and compared to coal. And the reason, of course, is that they're really, really, really low density forms of energy. You know, if you think about the energy that's harnessed, you know, turn on your natural gas stove at home. We still have, we're still allowed to have them here in, in New York City for the time being, although talks are <laughs> that we'll have to get rid of them. And, you know, put your hand above that. There's a lot of energy coming out of a very small, very dense medium. Um, obviously to the point that you, I, I don't recommend that you put your hand above. I should, I should have offered that disclaimer. And then, you know, without being too facetious, you consider the wisps of wind going through a nice open field. Absolutely. There's energy there, but you're not talking about the same density as you are coming off your natural gas stove, are you? And so the answer then has to be, 
we, in order to harness a usable amount of energy, we better make it really big. And so you're talking about these windmills now that stand as tall as a 20-story building. You're talking about solar panels that go on for acres and acres and acres. And, you know, the land use is whatever. I mean, that is what it is. And, and that'll be between ultimately farmers and, and, and renewable energy developers to figure out. I, I think that if ultimately wind was the solution, uh, we could probably figure that out. But the problem is it's all the steel, it's all the concrete, it's all the cement that goes into it. And, you know, I'm looking uh, at, at a four and a half megawatt windmill. This is one of Vestas's sort of new ones. You're talking like you know, 60 tons of carbon fiber in the rotors, you know, 10 tons of copper in the generators, 200 tons of steel in the nacelles, uh, and another 70 to connect it into the grid. And, you know, 1600 tons of co concrete and cement to form the basement and and how do you make these things well for the most part all of those materials i just mentioned are effectively just converted forms of energy you know you dig up and you refine ore to make copper uh you dig up and treat sand and concrete in order to, or cement in order to make concrete uh, and carbon fiber of course uh, is the same these are just energy massive energy sinks effectively and the same is true on, on the solar side of things and so what you end up with yes you can you can produce energy from them i mean obviously we know that however when you when you look at a four and a half megawatt windmill and you figure at best it's going to do best uh, 29 30 percent utilization rate and it's actually far lower than that um th that'll do something on the order of magnitude of like 40 terajoules per year of energy and i'm sorry i'm bouncing between units here that'll have a 20-year life but it'll require about 50 terajoules at least to build and so you're talking about what we call a gross eroi meaning just for that windmill of anywhere between at the best between 12 to 15 times compared to 30 times for oil and for natural gas. So already now you've cut your surplus by, you know, 60, 70%, something like that. But that doesn't really tell the whole story because you then need to buffer these things because they're not suitable for baseload power. And I think probably, you know, your, your audience is a sophisticated audience. They understand that at this point. You could put two, three, four, five, 10%, even 20% if you really have a strong grid, renewables, but they have to be backed up by something for when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. And that something as of right now is batteries. And the batteries themselves are terribly energy intensive to both mine the materials that are required and to then manufacture the batteries. And when I say they're energy intensive, you know, you have to dig up ore in the Congo to get cobalt. That's the way you get cobalt. Mm. You then have to mix it all into a slurry which is effectively sort of an aqueous solution with all these different chemicals. And then you put them into these big drying rooms and you put heaters over them to dry it from a slurry into a paste. So people love to tell me that we have these technological revolutions that are just around the corner that'll really lower the amount of energy needed to make a battery. And I said, well, show me the higher grade cobalt mine that's going to lower the energy needed to move earth. Yeah, and lithium obviously lithiums. Just doesn't exist. We had Henry Sanderson on from Volt Rush. We've done a number of episodes on the battery supply chain. I mean, mm. lithium's heated to 3,000 degrees using coal-fired plants in China. But That's so it. The, so, okay, so, so one, one further question, then I need to put my sort of challenge hat on. Where does, is solar similarly 15 to 1, or where does that sit so, so, against? 
solar is actually even worse. So solar is is you know probably the best solar on a gross basis is like nine or ten to one, and by the time you buffer it, it actually gets as low as like three to one on the best case. We have some examples of solar that is actually less than one to one, meaning the amount of energy that you put in. Uh, is more than the cumulative over its life energy that you'll get back out. So, so wind right now, well situated onshore wind is the best, but it still does not work. It just doesn't work. But yeah. solar is even worse from there. And then biofuels and hydrogen get worse from there. So, unfortunately, there's not a silver bullet really when it comes on the renewable side of things that I can see. Which is so fascinating about using this lens and the fact that it's not really entered the, I guess, the, the, the zeitgeist as you'd expect when we're facing these challenges, but perhaps it will as the price of money dramatically increases. But I guess just putting my sort of, you know, okay, well, that's rather depressing hat on. I guess that the pushback could come from two directions. One is, yes, that's now. These are relatively new technologies. Maybe the Iroyon oil was much less than it is today, which is such a highly efficient global supply chain. Can efficiency get it up to the 30 and above level, at which point it becomes viable? And then secondly, the other question is, of course, well, the sort of per force question, which is, well, the alternative is the end of civilization. So we, you know, we either just go to 15 to 1 or we, we plow the planet into disaster. I mean, I guess, please take the first one first. Mm. So as far as the first one goes, and again, you know, recall what I said before, which is, you know, we invest in public markets, we can turn on a dime. Uh, and frankly, you know, I'm really, really interested and literally and figuratively invested in whether or not these things can make those massive um, transitions uh, into higher EROI or higher EROI technologies. I, I just don't really see how, because when you stop thinking in dollar terms and you start thinking in what they call bill of materials or bill of goods, you know, where you start adding up the actual materials that go into these things, it becomes difficult to see where the levers will be. You know, people love to talk about the learning curve and the learning rate on things like batteries and things like solar and what have you. But actually, I think most of the dollar cost reductions in the past 10 years for renewables comes from the fact that energy prices have fallen and capital costs have fallen. And if you put those into a model, that actually explains, you know, 65 to 70% of the cost reductions of these technologies. So, you know, I, I'm critical, you know, show me where you can mm. begin to see. You can get a cost savings on, on, on wind, you can get a cost savings by going bigger, which is why we've seen that, right? So it doesn't scale perfectly, right? So if you go, and it has to do with the fact that the amount of wind is, is a square or maybe even a cube of the surface area or what have you. So if you make it bigger, you can actually get a material savings per unit of energy produced. The problem is at the sizes we're now at, you're starting to test the material strength of these rotor blades. Like they're starting to shear themselves straight off. And if you look, you know, you're, you have a different atmosphere when the when the rotor is at the bottom of a turn versus at the top you have different wind patterns so you you i think the industry's basically admitted that they've gone about as big as they can go there mm -hmm. uh, so i don't i just don't really see where the natural lever to pull uh, to make these things much and, more energy efficient would be and the challenge as well is for you know philosophically or in economics to it if you go to a regime of 30 to 1 to 15 of 1, now you're having to spread those 15, 15 available units are going to get much more expensive in terms of reinvesting into energy as well, right? So the whole thing is going to go into a, 
well, potentially into a vicious cycle, right? That's essentially what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think I, I think that's right. You know, if you go down, and it's really not, you know, fifteen to one is not the right number to use on renewables because that is uh, looking at some of the best cited wind. And the reason I, I tend to quote that sometimes is because I don't want people to push back and say, oh, you're picking average sites, you know. So fine, even on the best site, it's only half of what oil and gas would be. But I think realistically, you're probably looking on wind closer to like 12 to one on the average. And then when you buffer it, you're down to like seven, eight to one. So so you're really back to a world that you were in pre-1650. And we know what that world looks like. You know, right off the bat, we're going to have to divert a huge amount of energy uh, away from you know our surplus towards just creating the energy. That's that's clear, right? So right off the bat, we're going to have a major degradation in our lifestyle. But then it also is not a regime that lends itself to growth. You know, at a five to one EROI, we had no growth for seventeen centuries. So I would argue that it would be a very painful shift to a lower standard of living, and then even more troubling, one that doesn't have the opportunity to grow. Um, mm. I don't think that that's the path we're going to go down. I don't think it's tenable for any of us. I don't think that society will bear that. Um, I think that, you know, we've all been very altruistic uh, in our environmental concerns when we've had plenty of free, abundant energy this past decade. But I don't think for a minute that society will tolerate that, which is unfortunate. But Well, you, you see historical examples, right? You know, <laughs> you just have to look at the, the collapse of those million-person cities to what they very quickly devolved to to see what happens when exactly you start right. getting pressure on 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 standards of living and and, and surplus um so okay so and so and, and 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 we have and we have our first example of it this cycle already you know france and the gilets jaunes was basically a movement against diesel taxes that were being used to subsidize electric vehicles uh and that that happened very very quickly yeah well okay so so then the, then then the question becomes oh well, well okay well what to do because we started the, you know the start of this obviously decarbonization is important and it is having an impact on the environment and your two options are we need to invest in an alternative source of energy and also we need to be obviously there's efficiency gains to be made you know, you know across the board on the combustion engine but there's also sort of you know okay well then then you're in sort of a world of mitigation and resilience which is going to be a challenge as well so what what to do well, I think the what to do, I, I've gone from being, and you said before, you said, oh my goodness, this all sounds so dire. I've really gone from being of that opinion to being actually quite optimistic because the more work you do and the more one looks at some of these technologies, uh, there are some solutions that are out there. And in fact, they're quite appealing. So, I mean, the low hanging fruit to me uh, is, is nuclear power. Even current third generation nuclear power plants have an EROI in excess of 100 to one and of course generate no co2 um, the concerns around nuclear are usually fall into one of three buckets the first would be cost and we have seen a lot of cost blowouts particularly in the u.s we can talk about some of the reasons for that the second is waste and we talk about that as well because some of the new fourth generation reactor designs i mean first of all we can handle nuclear waste france handles it they recycle theirs and they effectively have no nuclear waste in the us we prefer not to recycle and so we store we've done that very well also but people worry about waste the new generation of nuclear reactors will have no waste at all associated with them and then the third is the misplaced concern over safety uh, nuclear power is extremely safe you know the only nuclear accident with fatalities occurred at Chernobyl. Um, that was a weapons facility that was 
a, a nuclear power plant that was effectively used to breed plutonium in order to make uh, nuclear weapons. It didn't have a containment vessel. It didn't have rudimentary safety features. It effectively was was just posing as a power plant. Other than that, you know, <laughs> that wasn't my, that I, wasn't mentioned in the HBO special. No, no, it wasn't. And you know that that HBO special, which was very entertaining, but it was, it was very, very. You know, I really take issue with people, I suppose, and, and institutions that, you know, I would say that Hollywood holds itself out to be extremely uh, virtuous when it comes to the environment and extremely virtuous when it comes to climate change and things like that. And and probably did the, the most to set back the nuclear cause in the last several years was, was that stupid document or that stupid <laughs> you know, miniseries, uh, which you kind of looked at it and you rolled your eyes, what are you guys doing? You know, nuclear power is our solution. It's our answer. Vaclav's Mill has always called it the most successful failure of all time. Successful because it delivered on every single promise it ever held out, and a failure because we just chose not to use it. Uh, well, but I think that we, that, we, that we has have to had, be the answer. So we've had Michael Schneider do a couple of episodes with us talking about the current generation of nuclear power, and I don't think he would argue with you on the the eroy of it. I think he looks at it from just the the, the economics of it and the challenge you know and 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 the challenges there but i kind of want to move on to these fourth generation nukes Mm. and how they solve those problems of of in particular economics yeah absolutely and and look i i agree you know we have a economic problem when it comes to building nuclear power plants and and part of that is we've effectively dismantled most of our ability to build these things and so each one is like this bespoke custom civil row suit that comes out you know very expensive with a thousand alterations and things of that nature um the other thing of course is that the amount of safety has gone up considerably now that's fine i think we should have a safe nuclear power industry but some of these cost blowouts i think have occurred because you've sort of changed the goalposts midway through a construction build and stuff like that. And so that, of course, adds costs to the project. But the fourth generation, we started, again, kind of in keeping with this theme. Several years ago, everyone talked about wind and solar. And we said, well, we better start to learn about this because I promise you that most of the pundits talking about it don't know anything and and, and we should probably figure out what what's what. And the same was true of these small modular reactors. I was reading article after article about how the small modular reactors are going to be the, our salvation. And I said, I promise you that these, you know, reporters and whatever have no idea what they're talking about. And it was sort of this, this completely taken on face value. So about a year, a year and a half ago, we said, we really want to understand the fourth generation or the small modular reactor market. And what we learned was actually quite fascinating. There's several different flavors of new reactor designs that are being pushed forward right now. And some of them are very similar to the third generation reactor designs, but smaller. I'm not so convinced that those will have a massive, massive cost savings or improvement. And actually, if you talk to some of those companies, they'll, they'll be the first ones to say, look, our greatest strength is that we're not reinventing the wheel. You know, we're just trying to put new engineering practices um, into what's effectively a tried and tested design. And I, th- there, there might be a lot of truth to that, but I don't think you'll get an order of magnitude change or, you know, dramatic 50% plus reduction in capital cost per unit of output by just making these things smaller. Uh, what the companies say they're going to do is they'll they'll build them in an in a assembly line so they'll be able to control the conditions of the assembly as opposed to having to build a larger one out in the field. I get that. You're right. That probably does make it a lot easier to build one. Your prop costs come down. And you have a standard design helps. But I don't think that it's going to be the huge game changer. To me, that's an incremental improvement. 
but there are some other designs that are fundamentally different. Uh, now, the, the 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 risk there to those designs, and I'll talk about some of them in a minute. But the risk to those designs is they have to go through the approval process uh, in the U.S. It's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC approval process. Uh, it'll take a few years. There's no two ways about it. And the NRC and there's risk there. The NRC historically has actually been quite hostile to the nuclear power business. It's funny, you know, you sometimes get these regulatory agencies that are beholden to the groups, or to the companies they're supposed to regulate. The NRC is the opposite. The NRC is a, is a regulatory group that hates the industry it's supposed to regulate and is basically was put in place to, to drive them out of business. I'm sure people will take issue with that, but that's basically has been true. That seems to be changing now. So I think that we should start to see uh, at least some, you know, thoughtful discussion and debate around some of these new designs. But that's the risk on some of them is that they need NRC approval. And what they do, and, and this is what I think is so fascinating, they represent effectively a fundamentally new, or new is not the right word, a fundamentally different nuclear power plant design. Why I say it's not new, we've actually toyed with some of these plans and these designs all the way back in the 1960s and 1970s, and they've been shown to work. They've been shown to be very, very safe, but they've actually been put on the shelf for some interesting reasons. And the most interesting that I've seen and the most advanced comes from a group called TerraPower based out in Washington state. Uh, it has money from Bill Gates, he's put in most of the money to date. And then in 2022, they announced a uh, series of uh, financing that brought in the South Korean SK, a big South Korean conglomerate uh, as well. They have a joint venture agreement signed with a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway to build the first of these designs, probably at the end of the decade. And so what do they do? It's a small modular reactor. But I think, based on my analysis and having visited them and talked with them, based on my modeling, they can reduce their costs dramatically, more than 50% compared to an equivalent nuclear power plant. And why can they do that? Well, the main reason that nuclear power plants are so expensive is that they operate at really high pressure. So for those of your listeners that are unaware, you have nuclear fuel rods, you put them in a special configuration, they start a chain reaction and they generate heat. And that heat is then used to boil water or you, you, you sits in a pool of water. And that water does two things. First is it takes the heat off of the core, stops it from melting down. And second, it provides a transmission mechanism for that heat eventually in the form of steam to spin a turbine and generate electricity. Now, the core of a third generation nuclear fission reactor plant will spit off heat at about 500 degrees C. And of course, water boils at 100 degrees C. So the only way to keep the water from boiling away is to keep it under very high pressure. And the pressures that you experience in some of these nuclear reactors, third generation that we have today, can be 170 times atmospheric pressure. So what does that mean? It means your steel better be super thick. Yeah, I was going to say it means uh, it means cracks. <laughs> right? It means cracks. It means incredible standards for your welding. It means special uh, nuclear rated valves and things of that nature to handle. You know, not only is it high pressure, but the consequences of a pressure breach are are, are quite bad. You know, you don't want to have radioactive steam breaching these reactor vessels. So you need 
unbelievable concrete. You need unbelievable steel. You know, everything is completely spec made. So it's expensive to manufacture. And then just the volume of materials is very, very high. How do these fourth generation reactors address these problems? They don't use water as their cooling mechanism. In the case of TerraPower, they use molten salt. Molten salt boils at 900 degrees C. So it can just sit there and it can take all of the heat off of the core, no problem. And it'll never boil away. Your pressure is you know, at or near atmospheric pressure. Your materials come down dramatically. It's walk away safe in the sense that if you just left it and turned off all the power, the heat from the reactor would heat up the molten salt, but it would never boil away. So it could absorb all of the heat coming off of that reactor core. So these things are safe. Uh, these things use substantially less material. And because of the fuel sources that they use, they generate between 80 and 90% less waste as well. So the material handling goes down dramatically. So they're really, really fascinating. They're really interesting. And I think they have a huge bright future ahead. Hmm. You mentioned sort of the timing to get these up and running. In some part, though, there you know we have a political backdrop, which is highly divided. Um, it's almost heresy to have this conversation that we're having in some ways. When you know, and one of the, the the challenges to nuclear is which party is going to who is going to be out there promoting it? Because you say a lot of the a lot of the delays and delay is what is the key issue in energy transition, right? It's a a very short timeline and a heavy lift to get to net zero. Do you, where do you see that piece of this? I mean, is there a growing recognition that this is the a key tool that is being underutilized? I think that there is. I would caution a little bit of um, temperance, if you will. But yeah, you know, look, I, I, people's views on nuclear swig back and forth. We are going through a little bit of a moment now, both in Europe and in the United States, where we seem to have some bipartisan support for nuclear power. It, actually, believe it or not, over the last five or six years, we've had bipartisan support for nuclear power. It's been the only thing we've had bipartisan support for. It hasn't been very big, though. You know, the 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 level of, of enthusiasm was quite low, but, but it actually, people reached across the aisle, go figure. But as of now, I think there's a more of a recognition that nuclear power needs to play a role. Uh, we're seeing it in Europe. Uh, we're seeing it in the United States, really for the first time um, in 30 years, we have a coordinated new build program that's going on both in Asia, Europe, and North America. Now, you know, again, I, I would caution people because if you talk to real nuclear experts, they always say, you know, this is an industry that breaks your heart over and over again. And I would not be surprised if this time the same thing happened in some capacity as well and, you know, sentiment shifts. But as of right now, we're seeing a little bit of a, of a nice moment for the nuclear industry. And we're seeing a lot of people sort of come together uh, and and admit that this should be part of the problem, uh, part of the solution, not part of the problem. And in fact, you know, maybe maybe an important part. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Where does and just wrapping up? I mean, I could go on forever. I found this absolutely fascinating. Where does that fundamental shift in the price of money and the price of energy, both of which are increasing dramatically, and you've mentioned that in the the LCOE, the levelized cost of of energy, mm -hmm. and how it plays into renewables. I, get, I just get the sense that that's going to be the real story of this year and beyond. And many of these more sort of pie in the sky projects, as you know, Jeff Curry mentioned this on a previous episode, 
are going to be, suddenly be really challenged. And, and as we record today, Silicon Valley Bank is facing enormous pressure, you know, as, as the as the money from VCs has dried up and cash now is king again. Is that going to accelerate in some ways the energy transition in that it's not going to allow so much money to wash into other technologies that really just aren't viable against the current suite? You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to sidestep your question. I tend to prefer to focus on, on the technologies and I prefer to tend to focus on um, the underlying fundamentals. Human psychology is so incredible in terms of overshooting the mark on one side and on the other. But I do think that you're right. I do think that a lot of these projects that were bid out and that were scoped out in a falling interest rate and falling energy cost environment, it's, it's, truly amazing how quickly they're they're starting to see cracks in their foundation and how how quickly uh you're starting to see fairly major write-offs of, of big renewable assets and things like that over what's you know i think only the beginning in terms of both capital costs and and energy costs but you asked before when the realization is going to be and you know to borrow a euphemism from the financial world it's sort of like going broke you go broke slowly at first and then all, and then all of a sudden and yeah <laughs> and i think it'll probably be the same you know a lot of these arguments i could have told you a year ago or two years ago or three years ago and, and frankly i i try to seek out arguments that like i said are rooted in 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 the physical properties and they don't often change all that much and so you know we've been saying this now a couple years and it hasn't made a bit of difference and now it seems to be making a difference sort of all at once so what'll be the ultimate realization that forces people my i suspect it's some sort of a black swan event uh that kind of changes the playing field a little bit and certainly europe last year had that with uh russia and having its energy supply completely turned on its head Europe was blessed with a with an unbelievable warm winter. And, you know, I think talk about history that hasn't been written yet. When we look back, you know, I think that'll be, you know, in, in military histories, that will be uh, akin to an act of God what happened last year. You know, this unbelievable winter saved Europe. And 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 as well, I think it's important to note, showed how incredibly resilient how incredibly effective and efficient an independent free market for oil and gas right a response yes. to supply chain was because they were incredibly lucky and i don't think there's there's perhaps not that recognition yet i don't think about how lucky they have been and you know who what who am i to say but what it what you can definitely point to is that the oil and gas industry saved the day with just the lng cargoes going into europe oil coming from you know i mean that again points to even if you ignore sort of the iroi of this the infrastructure lift to be able to achieve that resiliency and security is going to be is going to be very high uh, well it's been a fascinating discussion before we end up i want to say uh, um firstly I know you have a very popular and no doubt after listening to you over in this conversation, quarterly market analysis. Can you find talk to people about where they can find you, where they can find your investment fund and, and how possibly they can get subscribed to that? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, everything, all of our research, we, we like to put in the public domain. We like to be very transparent. Uh, you know, we're, we're investment managers. And so that that's our business. People sometimes call me to negotiate the price of our research. And they say, we can only afford X or Y. So it's actually free. We're fund managers. So that's all put in the public domain. Please go to our website. It's gorozen, G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com. And, and luckily with a name like Gehring and Rosenswag, if you type it into Google and you even get it half right, Google uh, will find us. ChatGPT will probably even give you the background of our of our 
names, but uh, Google will find us pretty easily. So please go. Uh, all of our uh, research, both past and present, all of our flubbed calls, all of our good calls, everything uh, is on our website. And please go and, and, and check it out. Yeah, and I'm delighted to say as well that uh, listeners will have an opportunity to hear you again because you're joining us for a, a panel at our live uh, HC Insider podcast event in New York in April talking just about the, the, the rise in interest rates and its impact on the energy and commodities world, what it means for valuations, what it means for traders and so on. So delighted to mention that. And, you know, I hope we can have you back on again in, in a year or so and, and, and see where we stand on this because Again, I've, I've been on a journey on this podcast and um, it is a really uncertain time and there's just a lot of different pathways out there and I think it's important that sort of all those pathways are discussed and uh, that the fundamental facts and, uh, and realities are, are, are embraced rather than, uh, rather than hidden. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and I look forward to, to continuing this discussion with you. This has been wonderful. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.